Ça ne répond à aucun des standards de la justice. This does not meet any of the standards of justice. It's a denial of justice. In April 2021, a group of press freedom activists gathered in front of the Moroccan embassy in Paris. Secretary General of Reporters Without Borders, Christophe Delois, spoke to reporters. Unfortunately, we are all too used to journalists in Morocco being denied justice to the instrumentalized procedures, to the invocation of facts, including, unfortunately, all too often, cases of morality, which are used to silence the voices of independent journalists. And Mati Majib, who is a historian, who is a committed man, is also one of those independent journalistic voices that are extremely important for Morocco. As a journalist, Mati Monjib had written numerous articles criticizing the Moroccan royal family and had been active in supporting opposition groups within the country. In 2015, the authorities decided that they had heard enough. They accused him of, quote, threatening national security and slapped him with a travel ban. His trial was repeatedly postponed and then in December 2020, he was once again arrested and charged with money laundering. In prison, he went on hunger strike. The authorities in Morocco came under intense criticism for the treatment of Monjib and in March of 2021, he was granted conditional release. Human rights groups and press freedom activists have continued to call out the campaign of harassment endured by the Moroccan journalist. Following a recent spate of brazen and shocking attacks against journalists in the Middle East and North Africa, the New Arab has launched a new series called States of Journalism, an ongoing exploration of freedom, repression and accountability in the Middle East and North Africa and beyond. My name is Hugo Goodridge. Welcome to the New Arab Voice The case of Monjib is disturbing, but sadly also all too common in the Middle East and North Africa. Press freedoms across the region range from bad to terrible. In their 2022 edition of the World Press Freedom Index, Reporters Without Borders ranked the press freedom of 180 countries around the world. Within the MENA region, the highest on the list was Tunisia ranked 94, down from 73 the previous year. In their report, they described how the intimidation of journalists had become normalised and how political parties regularly turned to social networks to launch disinformation campaigns to discredit the press and instil suspicion and confusion among voters. At the bottom of the list for the region was Iran, coming in at number 178, down four places from the previous year. Reporters Without Borders described how journalists and independent media in Iran are, quote, constantly persecuted by means of arbitrary arrests and very heavy sentences handed down after grossly unfair trials before revolutionary courts. This week on the podcast, we're going to examine two examples of changing press freedoms in the Middle East. The rise of the citizen journalist in Egypt and the subsequent clampdown by the regime of President Sisi. 
and independent outlet Meshkal and their journey from the aftermath of uprisings in Tunisia and working in a shrinking space. First, Egypt. You know, prior to the uprising of early 2011 in Egypt, the media environment was actually one of the most, say, interesting in the world. This is Dr. Courtney Raj, a journalist and fellow at the UCLA Institute of Technology, Law and Policy, with a focus on the intersection of technology, media and rights, and the author of Cyber Activism and Citizen Journalism in Egypt, Digital Dissidents and Political Change. It was one of the few countries where, you know, it had very restricted civil liberties, political rights, etc., but had a somewhat robust press. There was a level of freedom and of, um, you know, some independent media. It was very challenging. There, you know, was often a journalist in jail um, from the independent press, but there was room for doing some level of independent journalism uh, as long as you avoided red lines. Today we feel that we are free. We have the freedom to speak, to protest, to say that we are still human. We are living 30 years like like animals, like pigs. We cannot speak, we cannot protest, we cannot live like human beings. Inspired by earlier events in Tunisia, Egyptians of 2011 were flocking to the streets demanding an end to the rule of Hosni Mubarak who had ruled the country since 1981. As expected, the international press flocked to the scene, reporting back to their respective countries, while internally, the citizens on the streets were also doing their bit and reporting from the ground, armed with internet connections. When the internet really got going and social media started burgeoning in the area, we saw that it was citizen journalists that were really innovative in using those tools to connect with a wider public around the world, um, in the Arabic-speaking world, in the English-speaking world and beyond, but then also to do a new type of journalism in Egypt, which was really accountability journalism, which we hadn't seen so much before. This accountability journalism served by citizen journalism and the domestic nature of those reporting proved to be a vital outlet for Egyptian activists who wanted to get their voices heard by their fellow compatriots and also pull back the curtain on life under Mubarak. Egyptian issues through an Egyptian lens told by Egyptians. So citizen journalism was an opportunity for especially young Egyptians, to turn their own gaze to their own issues in their country and their take on it and, you know, report on that and and give their opinion and perspective instead of having to rely on outsiders or on foreign correspondents or on external media to get those stories out. And I think the power and passion of being able to tell your own story is part of what we saw fuel the uprising. And of course, what citizen journalism also did is it brought to light and and made it possible to publicly discuss things that had before only been probably discussed in you know private corners and in and, and dark shadows, human rights abuses, police brutality, rape, 
sexual harassment of women in the streets, all sorts of things that, um, you know, just weren't covered by the mainstream media. And of course, there was also coverage of arts and culture and poetry and the sexual revolution and all sorts of things, again, that typically the people who were doing citizen journalism didn't have access to the official journalism channels, or, you know, they couldn't have access to write about what they wanted to write about. As a general rule of thumb, oppressive authoritarian regimes that deal in human rights abuses tend to want to keep their crimes under wraps. And while Mubarak's Egypt did allow for a very narrow window of press freedoms, the notion that journalists could expose human rights abuses was non-existent at the time of his rule. When citizen journalism presented itself to the Egyptian authorities in 2011 and at earlier protests in 2008, the strict legal system in the country was fairly unprepared. What we saw in advance of 2011 is that the legal frameworks in Egypt didn't really envision what the internet was going to become. And in fact, you saw that a lot of crimes that were criminalized offline were less criminalized online. So there was actually greater space for freedom of expression and innovations like citizen journalism online because they didn't yet have the legal framework set up. Although this legal framework was not fully formed, it would be a mistake to think that it was a complete blind spot for the authorities. Egyptian blogger Karim Amma was arrested and jailed in 2007 for online posts that were deemed by the authorities to be anti-religious and insulting to Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak. Spoiler alert, post-2011, this legal framework would be bolstered to include all online behaviour. Citizen journalism did not cause the uprisings in Egypt and the overthrow of Mubarak, but it did serve as a vital thread in a tapestry of revolution. Courtney explains. I think that citizen journalism was really important in terms of priming a significant portion of the population for a couple of things. One was exposing a greater variety of abuses that, of course, many people probably knew or assumed took place, but now, you know, there was documented evidence um, in terms of shaping the global understanding of what was happening, which was important for the political support that would be needed internationally for any sort of uprising to work. And I think also the expression, the, you know, this ability to imagine a different future through the expression um, on these platforms was really important. So I don't know that this uprising would have occur- would have occurred if there hadn't been this groundwork laid by all of these, you know, young people doing journalism and documenting and imagining and expressing a different perspective because that was such an important part, you know, of what the revolution was about. I'm not sure how much that affected, say, the broad average person in Egypt, but it certainly, I think, was important to a a subsection of those dynamics, including creating a community that transcended sectarian boundaries because, you know, whether you're a Muslim Brotherhood or a libertarian sectarian citizen journalist, you know, you're both kind of doing the same sort of thing, which is reporting on and commenting on the system and the, the issues 
that you, you face and that you live in and, you know, doing that through journalism. And so I think that was also important in terms of building cross-sectarian collaboration, which was, which was important part of the uprising. For those of you who have been paying attention to Egypt since 2011, you've probably noticed that Egypt has taken a sharp turn back towards oppressive and authoritarian rule, courtesy of current Egyptian president Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. But if citizen journalism helped bring down one authoritarian ruler, couldn't the process be repeated? According to Courtney, probably not. Egypt's citizen journalists of 2011 had a distinct advantage over the state by using new and rapidly evolving technology, which the authorities had, for the most part, failed to get a strong grip on. Today's regime is a state with a Facebook profile. It is a completely different context. The advantage that citizen journalists and activists had in the period leading up to the uprising has completely turned around. There is no space left. There is massive repression online and offline across society in Egypt, across all different sectors. There is pervasive surveillance. There are, you know, sophisticated companies and technologies like, you know, NSO groups, Pegasus and other technologies that are used to surveil and track and hack uh, into the type of accounts and, and activists that were used in the past. And so I think that the power differential is so different than it was that it's really much more difficult now. Despite this, efforts have not ceased in Egypt. Citizen journalists have continued to highlight the abuses of the regime and highlight the injustices and struggles suffered by the Egyptian people. One of the most well-known names is Allah Abdel Fattah. Allah is an Egyptian-British blogger who rose to prominence during the 2011 uprisings, documenting the human rights abuses suffered by protesters and defending the people in Cairo's Tahrir Square from attacks by the police. Allah was arrested in October 2011 and then released two months later. In 2013, his house was raided, computers and mobile phones were seized and he was once again arrested. In 2015, he was sentenced to five years in prison. In March of 2019, he was released, and just six months later, the authorities picked him up again on unspecified charges. In December 2021, an Egyptian court sentenced Allah to another five years in prison for spreading, quote, false news undermining national security, end quote. On April 2nd of this year, Allah began a hunger strike in protest at being kept in solitary confinement and being denied access to British consular services. His sister, Sana Saif, believes that the Egyptian authorities will not allow him to leave another Egyptian prison alive. Steps forward were taken during the uprisings in Egypt. In the intervening years, steps back were also taken. Egypt's story of change will likely continue and the legacy of the uprisings will shape the country for better or worse. But whatever form the country takes, there will probably be more journalists.
So citizen journalism, I think, was innovative and empowering. The people doing it, these young journalists, often were not really allowed to study journalism or to pursue that passion in school. And they needed to be you know, studying engineering or to be physicians. There were kind of a few approved professions. But a lot of people uh, who I spoke with at that time were really interested in doing journalism and telling the stories of their society and their culture and their country and their opinions about things. And so it was this opportunity of using these platforms to express themselves, which not only, you know, gave them an outlet, but also set an example, I think, for all sorts of other people who saw these innovative, you know, journalistic and um, activist roles creating this new way of reporting and, and opining on Egypt that hadn't existed before. As citizen journalists were carving out a shrinking space in Egypt, in Tunisia, established journalists were looking to take advantage of newly granted democratic freedoms. Yeah, I mean, uh, to, to 2011 onwards, I think we saw a, a really big opening up of space for free press. And there were a lot of people sort of who jumped into it at the time. This is Fadel Aliriza, the founder of the independent Tunisian online news outlet Meshkal. I mean, we did see that very, very gradually, I think the media landscape has uh, improved since 2011 onwards in the sense that we've seen, you know, journalists who are willing to dive a little bit deeper into topics, maybe look at questions that hadn't previously been looked at. Mashgal, named for the Arabic word for kaleidoscope, was founded in 2019. Eight years previously, Protesters had taken to the streets and successfully managed to remove President Ben Ali from office, who had held the position since 1987. His removal ushered in a new chapter of Tunisia's story, and with it, it was hoped that a free and open press would be able to flourish. Into this space, which was fairly dominated by television and radio news, Meshgal was born. Yeah, we wanted to really do professional journalism work, something that we think was was really lacking with a very objective perspective, you know, not having sort of a, a set editorial line, but really being open to sort of talking to different people, um, but with a preference for highlighting the voices of people who are often not heard as much, right? I mean, we want to sort of treat everyone equally. And unfortunately, um, you often see similar people um, quoted in the media often. You often see that officials or uh, people in positions of power are given sort of privilege when it comes to discussing an issue, uh, when we feel that there's, there's quite a lot of people who are often affected by an issue. So we try and look at sort of multiple angles of an issue. Fadal explained how in addition to highlighting the voices of those who are often left out of the story, they also wanted to highlight the stories themselves that are also often left out. You know, the goal really is to, to, to make sure that some of the stories that we think are, are quite important that are being missed do make it into the media in, in very responsible, serious uh, reporting that we've, we've done. Um, particularly, I think one of the places we've shined since 2019 has been coverage of police violence. I think this is one place where we've seen a real lack of coverage in other outlets, both international and domestic, from 2019 till about 2021. And I think uh, we've, we've, we've often been the only people there at some of the sort of social movements, protests, demonstrations, where there's been really um, significant clashes between police and uh, ordinary people. 
With the founding of Meshkal, Fadel and his team set out on an ambitious path. The dominance of radio and television news in Tunisia did, on the one hand, work in Meshkal's favour, but also served as a hindrance in other ways. Journalism, in fact, there's, there isn't even really a... I mean, probably for the better that there isn't any regulation on the print side, but there is regulation on, on the broadcaster side because I think the authorities are quite aware of the impact um, that broadcast media has. So like I said, we're, we're doing something a little bit different. We're trying to really have a memory, maybe sort of a, a memory of some of the issues that are going on over the last couple of years. That said, uh, it also makes it more difficult to sort of get responses from officials who are less likely to see the importance of talking to print media. And I've seen this with other print media as well uh, in Tunisia. It's not just us, you know, that there is a real sort of sense that if uh, authorities, if a public official wants to get something into the media, they'll go on to a popular TV show or radio show, you know, not necessarily be in dialogue with some of the people that, you know, we want to be in dialogue or we want to put them in dialogue with, uh, which is something that, you know, we're able to do with print. Following the 2011 uprisings, optimism for an open, free and fair democracy with a free press ran high. And in the early days, all signs looked good. But as time went on, it became apparent that old habits die hard. It was quite easy to register an association uh, early on after the revolution uh, in 2011. And since then, it's become significantly more difficult, particularly in the last few years. On top of that, um, you know, I think there's quite a lot of sort of policing of associations. I think there is sort of the challenge of the banking system, you know, with the associative life and the sort of, if you want to start an NGO, you need to have people who are willing to give up a lot of their time without um, making any money from the association. On top of that, you have just sort of a few people who are designated in terms of financial capacity. So I think there are some structural issues to that. And like I said, banking is also a challenge given the fact that, you know, you can't really um, go to multiple branches of a, of a bank in Tunisia. You have to sort of work with the same branch if you want to get anything done. To fund operations in Tunisia, Meshkal is reliant on a number of different financial sources, including foreign funding. Something that current president, Kais Sayed, is less than keen on. And while not currently a major problem for Meshkal, it is an issue that they are all too aware of. Uh, you know, it's certainly now becoming more of a focus given the fact that the president has very much made it clear that he's opposed to foreign funding in the civil society, uh, let's say, ecosystem in Tunisia, which would, I think, effectively shut down a lot of the associative life in Tunisia. I mean, I think there is, there, I mean, there's, he's certainly identifying a problem that I think, you know, even opponents of his will, would, would recognize, which is that, you know, you have an associative life that is that's entirely dependent on, on European funding, which can create certain problems at times. But at the same time, you know, if there isn't funding uh, locally, uh, if there isn't sort of a public funding or sort of alternative fundings one way or another that uh, that are that are domestically, then I think that uh, you. you you, if you shut down all alternatives, you basically shut down an entire sector where there is quite a lot of good work. With threats to foreign funding being posed by President Saeed, who seized power last year, Meshkal is also seeking financial support from readers via its Patreon page. And beyond the threats to funding, Meshkal's journalists face a much more 
physical problem. Yeah, I think the most important challenge that we faced,、uh, that our contributors have faced, has been police violence at, at demonstrations, where not only have we seen Police violence against peaceful demonstrators, but we've actually seen police violence against journalists themselves. In some ways, it even looks quite targeted. In some other cases, oftentimes I would say, reporting outside of Tunis, we've seen more police surveillance, a bit of、uh, not explicit but maybe implicit pressure from from authorities. In that sense, whether from the, the police or, or national guard, some some sort of security forces. And Fadel has noticed a growing hostility towards journalists since President Saeed's paragraph of 2021, which represented a firm step back for press freedoms in the country. Since maybe 2019, I've seen more and more challenges for journalists, particularly after President Saeed's July 25th decisions last year. We've seen. An extremely polarized political scene. On top of the polarization, I think we are also seeing that the security forces are feeling emboldened. I think partly because the president has、uh, relied so heavily on security forces, and I think these are sort of the the main reasons why I think it's getting more difficult to practice journalism. So yes, I'm I'm very worried about freedom of expression in Tunisia. Despite an increasingly difficult environment, there are those in Tunisia who are holding the line and working to protect journalists. In the last couple of years, basically the 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 only way we see ourselves as being sort of protected is mainly through the support of colleagues through the National Journalists Union, who have done quite a good job, I think, of tracking violence against journalists, including from authorities. Calling it out and then really taking quite strong positions. I think maybe not strong enough at certain cases, but at least stronger than I think you would expect in other circumstances. There are still a lot of eyes on Tunisia. There's still a lot of people sort of who are concerned with with human rights and freedom of speech, who are speaking up for it. I think you know the more attention that there is on that, the more not just at the domestic level but the international level as well. I think those are all very helpful to everyone in Tunis who wants to practice journalism. Whether they are free to report or staring down the state, Fadel is determined that Meshkal will continue its work. I mean, the number one thing I think locally that we want to do、uh, is really to sort of encourage people to really get engaged with topics more deeply. I think, particularly for our Arabic readers, that there's so much that's online that is, you know, just a few sentences, or、uh, when it comes to reporting, or a lot of opinion, a lot of sort of. Micro blogging. I mean, you get a lot of engagement on those types of posts, but you don't get a lot of engagement on、uh, serious journalism. So we're trying to introduce、uh, more serious journalism、um, and get people to, to to really be able to sort of engage on it on that level. You know, we also think that you know at the international level, we want to be able to to, to write about Tunisia in a way that's really focusing on Tunisia. I mean, centering the the dialogue on Tunisia. Press freedoms in the Middle East and North Africa have been on a roller coaster over the past decade. In Egypt, citizen journalists used phones, blogs, and social media to expose abuses by the authorities, shine a light on issues that affected Egyptians, and amplify calls for change. They proved themselves to be a vital part of the revolution that removed a leader who had been unshaken for three decades. When the pendulum in Egypt swung back. 
who were beaten and jailed by a regime that learned from the mistakes of its predecessor. In Tunisia, the uprising brought hope that the country would be granted democratic freedoms, including a free press. Outlets like Meshkau took hold of this and produced journalism that sought to inform the public and hold to account those that seek power. More recently, they've watched as their country moves back towards one-man rule. These brief windows, where a free press can exist, are of course welcome. But the return to repression and a lack of accountability makes optimism for the future difficult. Fadal Ali Reza again. I would say at this moment, given the trajectory, I'm not optimistic. I think that we're going to see, unfortunately, um, less space for freedom of speech and freedom of the press. But, you know, that said, I'm not a defeatist. I think that, you know, there's always, there's always a, a struggle and a, a battle to be had by people who, who do want to protect and maybe even expand space for freedom of speech and, and expression and freedom of press. And final words to Dr. Courtney Raj. I am concerned about the future of press freedom in the Middle East and North Africa because of the levels of repression, the centralization of technology platforms that make it easier to censor and control and surveil, the expansion of sophisticated surveillance technology and its infusion into everyday life through, you know, biometric technologies through facial recognition technologies, etc. I think it is really, really challenging now to do journalism uh, safely. And there are so many more areas that seem to be off limits, greater repression, the willingness to target the families of journalists or the, you know, partners of journalists and the impunity with which those attacks take place. So I think it has become much, much more difficult to leverage the kind of the initial emancipatory opportunities provided by a decentralized internet and, uh, you know, all these platforms back when they were new uh, than it is now. And so unfortunately, I'm pretty pessimistic. The New Arab series on press freedoms continues online. You can read Nadim Nashif's examination of Israel's draconian Facebook bill, which will give the Israeli government the power to censor content on all websites. Hadia Al-Mansur's story about the female journalists working in the northwestern Syrian province of Idlib. Or Ella Cobain's perspective on the racial stereotyping around Muslim grooming gangs. All available on the New Arab's website. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Arab Voice. It was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge, with additional help from Rosie McCabe and Paul McLaughlin. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.